Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to this month's installment of the Yale Journal Biology and Medicine podcast. YGBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through a few episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. Today's episode is the first devoted to our March 2017 issue on drug development. I am your host, Helen Balenson, a third-year graduate student in the immunology program here at Yale, and I'm actually joined today by our two deputy editors that worked on our issue. I'm Pedro Yuan, a fifth-year graduate student in the chemistry program. And I'm Corey Horain. I'm a third-year MD-PhD student um, in the Neuroscience PhD program. Awesome. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about drug development. Um, and as our deputy editors put very eloquently in their introduction to their issue, um, drug development is the process of identifying and validating a small molecule or biologic with the potential to lessen human disease and subsequently introducing it into the market for clinical use. Um, so I guess... Drugs, basically, it takes them a very long time to go from the bench to the bedside. Um, And this all starts with very basic scientific discoveries about biological natures, either of organs or cells or the nature of a particular disease. And then this leads to discoveries of drugs that could potentially change kind of something that's wrong in a cell in a particular disease and things like that. Um, And then this drug is then released into preclinical trials. um, And then this drug will then go into modifications for safety, testing through clinical trials. And eventually, it has to either be approved or not approved through the FDA. Uh, I know that's a lot of information. And the three of us will take you through each one of those steps and hopefully kind of clear up the air and bring more understanding about what drug development is. Um, and how that works. So I guess we will start at the very beginning. As um, is said, it's a very good place to start. So uh, basic discovery or basic biological discoveries kind of have to start somewhere. And drugs don't appear out of the blue. Um, And basic biology is very, very important. I mean, I think the three of us are kind of biased considering we're PhD students and in the biological sciences. Um, But even when translating um, to the clinic or trying to find discoveries of drugs, biologic discoveries start with basic biological concepts. So um, yeah, so there are spontaneous discoveries that occur with drugs. Um, There is a great article or manuscript in the journal this year, uh, or this in this issue on the discovery of penicillin. Um, do either either of you guys want to kind of go through how penicillin was discovered? Yeah, so uh, penicillin was discovered by Alexander Fleming, who came back from holiday and saw that one of the Petri dishes that he left out was contaminated and that one of the contaminants was affecting the growth of the nearby bacteria. And... Um, The contaminant was the fungus Penicillium notatum, and so they named the molecule that it produced uh, penicillin. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of every graduate student and researcher's wish to kind of come back to a spontaneous discovery, but that's obviously not how how discoveries happen for for everything. Yeah, so um, 
So it would be really nice if we could spontaneously discover uh, every drug, but um, the normal routes that they are discovered are through rational design, which is using the aid of computer programs that let you visualize the interaction of the drug with your target, uh, and high throughput screening of large libraries of chemical compounds. And the third one is Me Too drugs, which are chemical variants on existing drugs that uh, don't violate the patents of those existing drugs. And so uh, we have an example of a rational design in our issue, which is an original contribution from Guzman and Schumig. Uh, they evaluated their in silico designed sphingosine one phosphate receptor modulators for managing multiple sclerosis. And so they optimized these structures using uh, existing molecules as scaffolds together with their critical binding interactions for the receptor ligand binding pocket in an attempt to optimize their properties. Corey, do you want to hit on some other ways that these drugs have been discovered? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we were very fortunate in this issue to have an original contribution from a student here at Yale who is researching new antibiotics. So um, antibiotic resistance is a huge issue. Um, there's every month it seems like there's a different super resistant bug that is not inhibited or uh, targeted by antibiotics that we have. So Durga Thakral talks about this a little bit in her article. Um, just there's, there's this huge need for novel antibiotics, things that are structurally unlike any existing antibiotics. So she talks about just the background, like I said, and she um, goes on to describe a set of experiments in which um, her and her colleague developed a high throughput screen. Um, they tested thousands of natural compounds and uh, synthetic compounds, and they found one that was structurally novel and also inhibited um, bacterial growth. So this was good. And they went on to characterize this, this compound as having specificity for inhibiting protein synthesis, and they showed that it is efficacious against Bacillus subtilis. So this is um, a really exciting piece of work, and it's still very early, like the authors say in their article, but they, they point out that um, this could be a, just a potential backbone for compounds, and this could be just a place to start um, researching these, these agents further. Yeah, I think this kind of high-throughput design of experiments is really popular in terms of drug development. So I actually got the um, awesome opportunity to talk to Dr. Jane Merkel at the Yale Center of Molecular Discovery. Um, and she was talking to me about their pipeline. So what happens um, at the Center for Molecular Discovery is that researchers will come in with some sort of potential target. So for example, if you have a cancer cell line that's expressing some sort of strange receptor and in basic biological experimental setups, they show that if you inhibit this receptor, these cells stop growing as quickly or don't have, or, or in, in go through apoptosis. So things that would potentially be beneficial in kind of a larger disease setting. Um, the Center for Molecular Discovery actually also uses these large kind of high throughput screening of these massive libraries of chemicals to find kind of anything that would inhibit or interact with this sort of thing. So this I feel like this is a one of the one of the gaps in kind of why it takes so long for drugs to be introduced on the market is actually the discovery of these drugs and finding these drugs. So you might have an idea to 
inhibit a receptor or induce a particular signaling pathway. But to actually do that, you need to find a molecule that could do that. And so these large throughput library screens are very critical in this process. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so once once a drug is identified or a target is identified and validated, um, then you kind of need to go into your stage of preclinical research. Um, so this is conducted in both in vitro and in vivo assays. Um, so for those non-scientists listening, um, in vivo is uh, kind of the cool slang we use to uh, designate things that experiments that are done in living things. So vivo is living and then in vitro um, kind of I feel like the definition sometimes jumps around, but it's either in cells or in tubes. Um, so I think depending on who you ask, some people say cells are still in vivo. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so at this point, um, the agent needs to be tested for safety and suitability in humans. Obviously, this is you don't want to be giving an unsafe drug to to your patients. Um, so at this point, um, the the researcher who's doing work on this drug has to apply to the investigative new drug. Uh, so this is an IND application, um, and the this is really important in terms of starting this process of getting the drug. Um, into into the clinic. Um, so there's a variety of things that can be done to test. So um, you can either start making kind of small twerks to the compound itself. Um, so if you know kind of the general property of the chemical that you want to make, so if you want it to be injected or swallowed or things like that, um, biochemists who work in... Um, who work in drug development know particular modifications that they can add or take off to make uh, drugs more soluble or whatnot. Um, and then there are studies that, um, so first you would start studying these drugs in a cell context. Um, so is it safe for the drug? So if you add this drug onto a plate of cells and all the cells die, that might not be the safest drug. Yeah, I think um, what they often test for is uh, called ADMETOX, which is an abbreviation for um, absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion, and toxicity. Uh, and they also look at um, pharmacokinetics and pharmodynamics, which are the influences that the drug and the organism have on each other. Yeah, so in terms of testing kind of in these preclinical stages, what do you guys see as the biggest gaps or problems that uh, people bump into? Yes. We, we actually had an article that touched on this a little bit. The article I'm talking about here is from a group at Yale ophthalmology researchers, and they talk about in their article, Novel pharma Pharmacologic Candidates for Treatment of Primary Open Angle Glaucoma. They detail how, first, first they describe um, a little bit about uh, open angle glaucoma, and it's it's a huge issue. I didn't I didn't realize this, but about forty five million people have it worldwide. Oh, wow. um, they talk about how there have been drugs around for a long time, but these aren't that efficacious, and there's a number of side effects. So there's been a push to develop novel agents that are efficacious, safe, and easy to take. And and they they detail in their article on um, these drugs. There's, there's three main classes of these drugs, rho, rho kinase inhibitors, 
modified prostaglandin analogs, excuse me, and adenosine receptor agonists. All of these agents are in phase two and phase three trials, and, and they talk about how that you see you see lowering of intraocular pressure, which is one of the, which is basically the cause of glaucoma, but there still aren't improvements in vision, and there still aren't really clinical outcomes. So it's it's hard in that these drugs have an effect, but it's not helping uh, a patient's life. So that's one thing that that really struck me in this article and just through this issue in general is that. You can have the perfect drug and the perfect target, but people are really complex, and it's it's just a really hard process. So um, I thought this article was a good illustration of that, and it's just it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I've, something that I found that was really fascinating while researching this um, was this big problem called the Valley of Death, um, and this is the whole idea that kind of once you find a target, even if you've done a little bit of research in mice or rats or cell models and things like that, it takes a while for pharma and industry to pick this up and start trying to take it through the phase two, phase three trials that you mentioned. Um, And then usually these targets kind of just stay in the valley of death and this drug is never pushed into the human trials, which is uh, our next stage. Um, And apparently these stages take almost a decade. So once you start clinical trials to once you're done with clinical trials, this is about 10 years, which I found to be kind of baffling, particularly since um, everyone's always interested in the newest drug and the newest way to treat things. Um, So kind of clinical research itself. So this is the research that's done in humans themselves. Um, So these are trials to look for, predominantly make sure that the drug is safe, that there's no side effects, and to really try to figure out dosage necessities. So phase one usually starts off with 20 to 100 healthy volunteers. Um, Sometimes it includes those that have the disease or condition that the particular drug is trying to target. However, um, this isn't always the case. And so this first stage um, is, as I said before, just to look for safety and dosage to make sure that the drug doesn't have strange side effects, um, that the people who are taking it don't feel ill from it. Um, and at this stage, about 70% of drugs will pass on to phase two. So in phase two, this is an increase of people. So at this stage, you have hundreds of participants, either those that are vol- healthy volunteers or those that have the particular disease or condition that your drug is targeting. Um, and again, you're looking for efficacy and side effects. Um, and you really, at this stage, are trying to get an initial reading of the efficacy and um, you want to look for how effective and safe this drug is in patients who have that particular disease that's being targeted by your drug. Um, And this is obviously important. Um, As Corey said, humans are very complicated creatures. Uh, Sometimes a drug can be very safe in a healthy volunteer, but then is not safe, for example, in someone with a particular disease. So phase two is when you start introducing um, volunteers who have the particular disease or condition. Um, And then uh, so at this stage, only a third of the drugs that are who go through phase two pass on to phase three. And in phase three, again, there's more people participating. At this point, it rises from hundreds to uh, about 3,000, I think, is the max for phase three j- trials, again, with those with 
with the disease or conditions, again, looking for efficacy, reactions. Um, yeah, so this at this point, you're starting to do the first big trials to determine safety and efficacy in a large number of patients with a particular disease. So again, humans are complicated. Uh, maybe a drug that works in 90% of people works well, but in 10% of people, there's some off-target reaction. Um, and this is the phase where you get more and more people to kind of get a better sense of how this drug is interacting um, with the human body. Uh, and then at this stage, if safety and efficacy are adequately proven, um, clinical testing can actually stop. And then this uh, new drug can advance to the NDA stage. So this is the new drug application stage with the FDA. Um, and just a little bit of background on the FDA or the federal, the Food and Drug Administration. I'm sorry. So Something that I didn't know is that it was actually started by Abraham Lincoln um, way back when, something that was very surprising to me. I just assumed this was a much newer branch. Um, and it was initially the Bureau of Chemistry to monitor agricultural use of chemicals that were making people sick, um, which I, again, was very surprised by. Um, and then... Starting in the uh, 1960s, in the wake of the thalidomide disaster in Europe, so what happened here was um, this, sedative, this sedative thalidomide was initially um, claimed to cure anxiety, insomnia, tension, um, and it was actually used to eliminate nausea. And so the population that generally has nausea are pregnant women. Um, and the pregnant women were given thalamide to alleviate morning sickness. Um, and it was became an over-the-counter drug in West Germany in 1957. And then it was, um, after this happened, doctors started noticing that more and more infants so were born with malformation of limbs, and only about 40% of these kids survived. Um, and then uh, throughout the world, there was about 10,000 cases of, report of infants with these malformation of limbs due to thalidomide. Um, only about half of them survived. Um, and because of this, the FDA started to kind of take on the responsibility of making sure that drugs that are available to the general public are actually safe and aren't just safe for um, the, the mother. Uh, they're actually safe for the, uh, the, the fetus as well, which I know is a, became a big part of drug testing. Yeah, the interesting thing about the thalidomide story is that it's actually, well, a chiral molecule. And so um, there are two enantiomers that exist of it, but I think, um, so one enantiomer caused birth defects and the other one was effective in treating nausea, but um, at the time they didn't realize this, and so they gave everyone a mixture of these. Of the two structural yeah. kind of mirrors. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's going back to the basic, the importance of basic research is that if if only they had been able to kind of separate that out, maybe that would have done much better <laughs> on the market. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to no, jump in. But no I, I think... This is a really cool example, uh, a case study. It's unfortunate that people suffered because of it, but um, it really illustrates the the tension between the need to understand something at a basic level versus getting something in right away to help patients. And that's something that I didn't appreciate fully until working on this issue, in, is, is that there is this 
dynamic tension. And on the one hand, we need to push things through fast and, and get them to the clinic and, and in use, but we also need to be thoughtful. We need to really have full mechanisms if possible. And it's just, it's hard. <laughs> it's a really hard thing that you have to balance. Um, but I think it's, I mean, it's of the utmost importance. So we need to keep figuring out as much as we can about these drugs. Yeah, I think something else that was interesting that came out of the thalidomide um, problem was that for a while then pregnant women or women who were of the age that they could potentially be pregnant, they were actually excluded from clinical trials. And so a lot of the information that we have in terms of safety dosing and things like that is actually just conducted in studies with men. Um, and I know in the last um, last decade, I think, NIH, so the National Institutes of Health, um, which fund a lot of basic research, have really pushed towards making sure that women are also included in clinical trials if necessary and people of all ages if it's applicable. Um, so I think, yeah, <laughs> I think we're all continuously going back to this idea that humans are very, very complicated. So the more, the more of a sample size that you have in terms of testing safety is obviously important. So this is just uh, interesting, but it ties into what you were saying about the sex differences. So I just read in uh, CNN News that, for example, twice as many women went to the emergency room in 2010 because of adverse reactions to Ambien than men did. And mm -hmm. so this led to a new policy implemented by NIH last year for scientists to consider how sex affects biological systems which also has some critics of this policy. Um, but NIH uh, hopes that this policy will help biomedical researchers to include more female animals and cells in their studies. Yeah, I feel like a lot of researchers, I, I mean, I know that I'm guilty of having cell lines and working with cell lines, and I'm not actually sure if they're male or female. And I feel like it will... <laughs> at least having the NIH tell you to pay attention to it, it could have a lot of biological implications that we didn't know coming in because there are so many um, just physical differences and potentially biochemical differences in these cells. Yeah, as, as another brief aside, um, in my second year medical school class, we were taught that um, in addition to just overall treatment goals and considering differences in, in sexes and whatnot, um, in the current blood pressure treatment guidelines, um, uh, race is taken into account in, in that it's been shown that African-Americans respond differently to different um, drugs uh, for treating high blood pressure. So um, when, when talking with a patient about, excuse me, patient about um, blood pressure treatment, you need to also consider their cultural and ethnic background, which I think is, is really cool <laughs> in that you know, we can help somebody and give them a drug that's going to be a little bit more specific for them, which mm -hmm. is which is a cool thing. Yeah, I think Japan actually conducts all its own clinical trials. I think yeah, yeah, the only country to do that. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, I kind of wish that I don't know. Maybe America's too much of a melting pot to have kind of its own. I don't know its own testing because we have such a diverse kind of culture, but I guess with having thousands of people go through clinical trials that hopefully really will give kind of a sense of kind of a general summary of the <laughs> United States population going <laughs> forward.
Um, and then, uh, so once once um, researchers apply for this new drug applications with the FDA, um, this kind of shifts over the phase into phase four. So this is actually when you test for, uh, you use volunteers who have the particular disease or condition that your drug is uh, hopefully going to be positively um, affecting. And you're going to have thousands of patients and you're going to, again, be looking for safety. Um, And then once marketing starts up with the FDA, there's always going to be post-approval trials and then post-market surveillance studies just to monitor to make sure that there wasn't any uh, bump in the road that went unnoticed previously. Yeah, so that's kind of, those are the the major steps of drug development. So kind of discovery and kind of identification or development of particular drugs, then going into preclinical research to start initial testings and modifications of the drugs, and then uh, and studying those in in vivo or in vitro systems. So for example, mouse models, rat models, or various cell systems. Um, and then the clinical research. So this really is a very long process. Um, and in talking to Dr. Jane Merkel of the Center of Molecular Discovery, she really emphasized that collaboration is very, very critical in this kind of entire process, particularly because like, as I said, the process is very long. This is involving basic researchers, uh, researchers that specialize in biochemical modifications of drugs um, and pharmacology, and then going into clinical research, which kind of demands the the need for doctors and people who are more familiar with gross anatomy um, and really interacting with patients. Um, and it, it really does seem that this general increase in collaboration across science that's particularly been going on and revving up in the last decade or so is very, very beneficial for drug discovery on a whole. Definitely. And, and we have, uh, luckily, we have an article that illustrates that. Um, Jamie Brown from the Durham uh, VA healthcare system in Durham, North Carolina, um, and colleagues contributed an article talking about how um, pharmacists have a lot to offer in terms of um, playing a role in the clinical research arena when it comes to new drugs. And um, he lays out a pretty convincing argument how uh, say, saying that basically we train pharmacists to be experts in medication and medication safety and administration, et cetera. So we need to leverage them when it, when it comes to research. And um, especially he talks about because the, the practices of ordering, handling, and dispensing um, investigational drugs is different than medications that are approved. Pharmacists are almost obligated to be involved. And he he goes on to talk about a number of just practical issues that they can help with in terms of educating the medical team, um, alerting medical staff to how investigational drugs might be packaged differently, to more of just theoretical concerns almost that pharmacists can can help with. And um, this is this was a really cool, really thoughtful article, and he ends with basically. We have these people trained to to be experts in medication, so we we kind of owe it to to ourselves to um, involve them in in the clinical research area, which which I thought was really was was a really great idea and a really great article. Yeah, I feel like the more people we get 
in on this process, the better the experience would be for everyone. Yeah, so something else that I wanted to hit on um, and discuss a little bit with you guys is this idea of orphan drugs. So there are a variety of different diseases in the United States from all kind of aspects of the human body in which this particular disease will affect less than 20,000 American citizens. So these are very, very rare diseases. And the problem with this, and as I said before, you need thousands and thousands of volunteers for clinical trials to go through these clinical trials and to look for safety. And if you have an orphan disease that only a couple hundred or a couple thousand um, Americans have, it's very hard to recruit all those numbers for clinical trials. And because of this, in 1982, a coalition of supporters of patients or families with patients with very rare diseases formed a variety of different groups. So one example is the National Organization for Rare Diseases, and they called for a change to legislation to support orphan drug development, particularly because it was so difficult to get the support of the government to get these orphan drugs through the system because they weren't able to get the proper numbers of volunteers for all these studies. So the Orphan Drug Act was signed into law by President Ronald Reagan on January 4th, 1983. And what the Orphan Drug Act does is it tries to eliminate the statistical burdens that the different phases, particularly of the clinical trials, require. So this is a government intervention to motivate manufacturers to actually make orphan drugs or to support the discovery of orphan drugs. Um, So, for example, there's tax incentives, enhanced patent protection, uh, clinical research subsidies. Uh, There's a seven-year market exclusivity for companies that have developed an orphan drug. Uh, There's class credits that are – or tax credits, excuse me, equal to half of the developmental costs – There's special grants for these drug developments, um, which is actually very important because a lot of government institutions, such as the National Institutes of Health, don't actually fund directly drug discovery. Um, They also have fast-track approvals for drugs. So this is basically a great act that was put forth to help find drugs that can help people who have these very rare diseases. So before 1983, so before the Orphan Drug Act was signed, only 38 orphan drugs were approved. And by 2014, so this is, I don't know if I can get my math right here, 30 years, right? 2014 from 1938 is about 30 years. Uh, 373 orphan drugs were passed. So this is clearly a huge increase. And collectively, this is positively affecting the health of many, many individuals in the United States. And something that I thought was very kind of surprising about these Orphan Drug Act, and obviously this is a very positive thing, um, very positive um, act that was put forth. However, this kind of gives them priority. Orphan drugs get priority in terms of development. And apparently it's actually easier. So for example, if you have an orphan drug that targets some aspect of the immune system, so for very rare autoimmune disorders, you can then, uh, once this orphan drug is approved by the FDA for that particular rare disease, you can then kind of refurbish it and start researching it more for other 
more widespread autoimmune disorders. And this is actually a, a, a way to fast track drugs for diseases that do affect more than 20,000 Americans. Um, so this is a way to kind of, you can use the Orphan Drug Act to get a drug approved for a rare disease and then kind of refurbish it for a more widespread disease, which I think is a really interesting way to go, particularly because that that process actually takes faster than if you were to propose that drug um, for the widespread disease initially, which I think um, is a little bit of a problem, particularly because there are a lot of diseases that are widespread that aren't being treated um, or aren't being funded, particularly cardiovascular problems. And I know that we, we did touch on the antibiotic problem as well. So there are drugs that are needed by the general population that aren't necessarily being addressed, perhaps because they aren't kind of sexy in the research world anymore. And yeah, I feel like there's a huge economic pressure as well. Yeah. So to touch on this uh, economic incentive, that's a criticism that a lot of people have of Me Too drugs, which often are for existing conditions that affect many people. But also there are drugs that already exist for this. And so drug companies spend a lot in terms of marketing these compounds when there may not exist a real need for another drug of this class on the market. Um, but it's a way for them to discover something and basically make large profits. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of the hurdles and gaps that do exist um, in kind of the drug discovery do seem to be economically driven, which, um, I don't know, at least for me as a basic researcher, it was a little frustrating. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. and. I didn't know much about the Orphan Drug Act until working on the, this podcast, in fact. But just hearing what you just said, Helen, about the the push to get things out faster and you know the economic incentives that we've discussed, I I almost cringe because it feels like we're bound to repeat the thalidomide example. Uh, for instance, we're we're just pushing things out, and there's this this need to get things out as fast as you can and remake your money. And I just hope that we um, are considering this safety and just all of these all of these other things that go along with drug development. It's and again, it goes back to the dynamic tension that we've talked about. So I just hope that the safety isn't lost because of the economics. Yeah, especially because, so I was actually speaking with um, Dr. Carrie Lucas, who is a professor in immunology here at Yale, who does study autoimmune disorders. And she was talking about how a lot of the autoimmune disorders, particularly the rare ones, affect children greatly, and they f you first diagnose them in children. So it's yeah, I think there's also this kind of social idea of like, how do you, you have kids with diseases that you want treated and kind of there's also the the economic pressure. Um, I think there's this is a very complex kind of interaction that involves not only the government, but economics and sociology and obviously biomedical research. So I think we've tried to simplify it, but I think even in trying to simplify it, we've found that this is such a complex system. 
For our listeners, I just want to emphasize that all of our, uh, we are a fully open access journal. So um, if you go to medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM, you can find a link to all of our issues and all of our articles are open access. Um, And I highly recommend kind of checking those out. Uh, But by putting this issue together and reading all of the manuscripts and things like that, uh, what has been the biggest thing that you've changed your mind on on drug development? Or is there something that very much surprised you in reading these manuscripts? I I think for me, I've hit on the complexity a few times. So there's that aspect of it. But to put an optimistic spin on it, I think that there are just a lot of opportunities in terms of leveraging our, our basic biology knowledge into effective treatments. I think that hopefully this will be the era, the, the century of biology. And I, I just think that in terms of having specific targets that we can go after with a very specific agent, this is a really cool time to be involved in biomedical science. and. I came away really hopeful, I'd say. You know, it, this is really hard and it's really um, a difficult, arduous process, but there are really um, a lot of cool opportunities for people who are interested in this field and just in terms of career prospects. I mean, this is, this is a cool field to be in and there's a lot of cool opportunities to help society at large. So that was, that was one of the optimistic things I learned from this issue. For me, I think the interesting idea that I took away was that when I was reading this article, uh, this perspective about antimicrobial resistance, they mentioned that the UK government drafted a 10-point plan about key strategies that should be implemented to address the problem of antimicrobial resistance. And so this kind of highlights that Yeah, drug development is not just some issue that researchers in the lab have to worry about. They think of it as a global problem, which society in general has to take steps to kind of monitor and control. Yeah, I mean, I think something that we we haven't touched on is kind of, and that's part of these 10-point plan that was proposed was, first off, getting better investment, um, and then also trying to get things globalized. And we're in a country that does a lot of biomedical research, that has a lot of drugs that are coming out. But I think as drug development isn't just for those that happen to be in these sorts of countries, kind of finding the initiatives to take these drugs to areas that potentially need it more than we do or that need these vaccines and drugs and things like that would be amazing. Um, And that is something that we don't have time to touch on today. So thanks for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thanks to our two amazing editors-in-chief, Tomo Sazaki and Yasmin Zakinyaz, and the rest of the YJBM board. The YJBM podcast is made up of me, Helen Balenson, Erica Gorenberg, Neil Ravindra, and Ali Kuhlman. For more info on YJBM and our podcast, you can visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. And again, there you can get the link to check out our journal by PubMed. Um, and again, check out our archive. It's all open access, free to the public. Um, and if you want to contact us, you can email us at ygbm at yale.edu. 
And our next series will be on infectious disease, where we will be talking more about antibiotic resistance and kind of why that is such a scary idea and some of the ways that we're tackling that.